Hello everyone, welcome to Wish You'd Known. It's Glenn and I coming to you to talk to you about all those things that actually matter in the world of advice. So we're going to be covering a whole lot of stuff from insurance PDSs to claims to advice best practice, business performance and all the tech stuff. Now, we think this is going to be really valuable for you because we're just cutting to the detail that matters when the rubber hits the road. Absolutely. And I I just want to say, um, wish you'd known, we're doing this podcast for the younger advisor, Mm. but also the older advisor because... You know, I was an advisor for over 12 years and there was crap that I wish I'd known well into my career and we just didn't have the resources like this. And things change so quickly. Like it's really hard to stay abreast of all the changes that can make really impactful consequences for your clients. So I guess it's always this sort of refresher stuff like what's changing so quickly that you might not be across it as well. Absolutely. So if you are new to the advice world, welcome. If you are doing your professional year or still at university, welcome. We're here to encourage you. We're going to have some good, high-quality guests on. Mm, Experts Uh, in all their fields. Experts in every field. We're just here to facilitate a conversation. And also what I think I want to add, Glenn, is these are people's opinions. Like These people will be joining us from various companies, but everyone has really broad experiences that are a collection of, of where they've been, what they've seen. So anything that we really talk about is opinions, isn't it? It is. And like everybody, we've all got one. That's right. Now, who have we got today, Danny? So, today we're welcoming Adam Crabb. So, Adam's got a very impressive rap sheet, was an advisor for many years, ran a practice. I've got to really take a deep breath in. (gasps) Now, was a Kaplan lecturer for many years, spent time making sure that non-approved products were placed well. Now you're working at Zurich as a risk strategy specialist, so so bringing, I guess, best practice to life. But what Adam is joining us for is an insurance PDS deep dive so that we can get along all those little devils in the detail that actually matter when the rubber hits the road. An advisor is basically the linchpin between a client's dreams, goals, aspirations, you know, all that stuff and the big scary world of how the hell do we do this stuff? Uh, Mm. I know from my own experience, there were things in a PDS that were material and not material to every client because everyone's different. So, Danny, I wanted to spend the time with Adam to talk about what are the must-knows for a client when you're sitting in front of a client even if you print one of the pages of the PDF, circle it and go, hang this on your fridge, you'll need this one day. It's a great question and a really, I think, a really important one, uh, particularly when you look at just the sheer size of these documents. It becomes a bit like, where do you start with these things? But I think to answer the question, Glenn, it comes down a lot to what is and who is the client that you're dealing with. Um, someone who is a millennial, um, you know, what's important to them, what some of those characteristics are of that product, some of the features may be different to perhaps some of those older clients. Um, And I think therein lies an opportunity to really engage on a regular basis, particularly from a a renewal perspective or review point of view, that as client situations change, as they perhaps, you know, come into a couple situation, maybe leave a couple situation, maybe have children, dependents, you know, what becomes more important over time can actually in fact differ. So I think to answer that question, what would be 
critically important would be what resonates from that perceived or potential risk that that client perhaps faces in their life. It may be to do with their occupation. Um, it may be to do with what is done outside of their occupation. So that's probably one of the areas I would look at first. What is that client? What is that couple, that family, that situation that is being presented to that advisor um, that is perhaps going to help drive the perceived risk of that? So it's an interesting thing you say there, uh, Adam, because this, you know, when we are dealing with our clients, it's all about this client engagement. It's building trust. It's making sure you understand that they are unique. In the fact-finding stages, we need to be asking as much as possible about their own situation. So, for example, uh, what if someone was a school teacher or rode motorbikes on the weekend? Talk to us about you know some of the issues there that might be apparent based on hobbies um, and occupation. Yeah. So I think if to use your analogy, if you're a teacher, um, you know, and if uh, if I was an advisor and dealing with a client that perhaps had been a teacher for. 15, 20, 25 years, you know, my mind would suddenly shift from, you know, how important perhaps is an own occupation definition of TPD for this client, given that they have been doing the same role for such a long period of time? Could it be unreasonable to think, well, are there any other occupations that this particular person could be doing? So um, there may be a strength to say, well, perhaps let's maybe pair back from the own occupation side of things uh, and maybe look towards any occupation TPD, some of the nuances inside an income protection policy, for example, um, particularly when you consider that, um, interestingly, from a, uh, you know, recent research that came out from a national level around uh, workers' compensation, was that some of these white-collar style workers, like teachers and others, um, actually have uh, you know, certain risks inherent where many of these clients are not actually able to qualify for financial assistance through a workers' compensation scheme. So there may be this perception that, well, you know, this is a particularly low-risk type occupation. Um, you know, if something happens, it's probably going to happen at work, in which I'm probably covered through this type of scheme, where in fact that may not be the case. So um, I, I think that's one element to that. I'm going to hit you with some of the, the myths and the commentary that I hear in the market. And one of the chunky ones with TPD is, well, TPD is a pigs might fly type event it doesn't really happen that often. So if budget is an issue, I'm going to cut that or that's going to be sacrificed. Like what would your advice be to someone who's sort of thinking along those lines for that mm. price conscious client? I'd be really concerned. Um, and I'm saying this purely from, you know, if I was to put my insurer hat on for a moment, you know, one in six of our dollars out the door in claims is for a TPD. So I think those who are thinking that, you know, is TPD, to use your words, I think, is it a pigs might fly type situation? Absolutely not. I think it's something that we are seeing um, certainly increases, mm. um, these sorts of things occurring. And it's not necessarily people suddenly find themselves in, you know, a paraplegic type situation. It could be things like cancer. It could be mental health, which mm. is driving. So what I want to dive into, Adam, is if I have a client that's got death cover, TPD, income protection and trauma, what are the two things across all of those benefits that they really need to be aware of? Like what are, what is the takeouts? Because there's a big conversation generally where insurance fits into a broader advice conversation and clients can only retain one or two things. So what are the little devils that we need to highlight within those benefits? 
Yeah. Starting with, let's start with term. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think if we start with term, the first one that jumped to mind would be exclusions. So I think mm. particularly if you extend outwards from the retail space, uh, which tends to have that sort of suicidal self-inflicted injury exclusion, albeit for a short period, in group indirect, it could be vastly different. Um, mm. So it could be, you know, things like uh, the direct indirect results of alcohol. It could be... Is that a very common one? Uh, or is that like some rare contract... Is, is, is how, how common it would be is that prob- Yeah, I would say it'd be rare, okay. but it could certainly be – it could be there. Um, a regional exclusion could be more, more uh, what's common. A re- explain a regional exclusion. So um, you could tend to find that there may be um, wording such that if the government imposes a do not travel okay. uh, on a certain location um, and as a client you decide to travel to that location, uh, it could render that contract being – not able to pay if a client was to, to pass away in that location while they're there. So last week I wanted to, I got the travel bug and I had a look at the, the DFAT warnings or the travel warnings and most of the globe is actually in the red That's right. category. So you're saying to me that maybe someone who, Australian citizen, I had insurance for them years ago, they're yep. now living in New York and say they, they do pass away from, from COVID or that might not be covered. Is, is that what you're saying? That's, There's a possibility of that. That's correct. So while many may be thinking, well, what about a pandemic exclusion, which can occur, if there is that regional exclusion, um, and you use COVID as an example, you know, one in six global deaths at the moment are sort of happening in the US, so that could be problematic. But Yeah, so just I think it's clear to note, though, that risk is more there when you are talking with clients on their group cover because retail cover, it should be caught in underwriting. Correct. Which is very, very different. Yeah. So group and direct, Glenn, you're absolutely right, uh, where where that tends to be more prevalent. The second one I'd probably consider for term would be around the terminal illness treatment. So here you tend to find that, you know, the government again sort of moved the bar. They actually improved or sort of mandated an improvement for terminal illness, increasing that threshold to 24 months. But I think what's not well known is that that rule change affected the treatment of money in super so being able to access your super if you're told that look danny i'm afraid you've got a significant cancer and you've got 18 months left to live so you'll be being able to actually access that that uh, accumulated value of super but in a life insurance contract it's so wide and varied you know some policies will still have a 12 month terminal illness definition others 24 months um if in some group contracts it can be as low as six months Mm-hmm. So there's just quite a swing on um, the treatment of terminal illness. And again, from an insurer's perspective, we see a lot of terminal illness claims happening to people in their working age. So don't naturally assume it's something that you need to be concerned of in your 70s, 80s or 90s. You know, life insurance benefits, and you've only got to look on uh, life insurance claims. Like We pay a significant amount of life and terminal illness claims. I've done more terminal illness claims in my career than death claims. Wow. It's just wild. Mm. Okay, so you must consider when you're recommending life cover, the exclusions and the terminal illness. Yep. Just bring those two things to the attention of your client. TPD, what are we bringing to the attention of our client relating to the PDS? So I think one of the critical areas of TPD, it's not just about work. So not just about an own occupation or any occupation. While they are important um, and certainly not to be discounted, I think we need to extend the discussion beyond work because there's likely to be an, an, an expectation that if a doctor says, look, I'm sorry, Glenn, I'm sorry, Danny, something's happened to you and you're going to have this for the rest of your life, it may not impede 
on your ability to work, but it could significantly increase the cost that's incurred for your treatment, for your rehabilitation, for medication that you may need. So I think looking beyond the work definitions uh, is certainly one that I'd be looking at. It's really interesting you say that, Adam, because I actually looked at a carer's report that was released from the government and they said 53% of people who have a severe or profound disability actually want to work. Yeah, wow. So, and and 11% of people with that severe disability are actually in full-time work. Occupy. I mean, what we do for work, it's such an important part of who we are and instinctively. So what else can they rely on? Like if, if they're not just relying on that own in any occupation, like to, to pay them out? Yeah. So I, I think when we think about superannuation, often our hands are tied because the government has sort of set that bar within super um, as to what's accepted. And of course, that needs to link back to working in any occupation based on education, training experience. And there are variances to some of that wording. But, uh, you know, outside of super, the sky's the limit. Like, it's all about the quality of the wording, the definition. Um, if I think about my own situation, my wife, who's not in paid work, but she works a tail off at home, you know, really an occupation-based definition is largely irrelevant for her. So something based on domestic duties or a functional impairment for her would be perfect. Can you explain the functional impairments? Because there's now various contracts in the market around activities, a daily living definition has expanded and, and become a lot more sophisticated than it perhaps mm. it. So if, if you could, you know, put that, that product research hat on and kind of explain the various components of that. And look, ADLs, they did get a bit of a bit of a, a smashing by um, in that ASIC report recently and I think it was called Holes in the TPD Safety mm. Net. And it is, it is a hard thing to qualify for because typically your activities of daily living where you can't, you know, feed bathe, yeah, toilet, in a bad place. really, really bad place. Um, it is. It does require a significant level of disability. So that is probably on the upper end of functional impairment. But I think if you were to bring it back to simply just being unable to do what you are able to do on a daily basis, it could be something as trivial as, you know, keyboard use, or it may be something like um, being able to sit, stand, squat, just sort of those sort of movement impairments. Um, they should be something that should be considered as part of someone's total and permanent disablement. Okay, so for TPD, we're really looking at um, you've got to explain to your clients the non-working aspects of the cover Mm. and make that apparent. Yeah, and I think they've become a lot more sophisticated. So there are a lot more options in contracts that are well beyond the the traditional activities of daily living. Mm. Correct. So my question to you listening... Uh, when you're sitting down with your clients next and there is a non-working spouse there, how can you provide comfort to the family unit around TBD cover and the non-working? I'd be closing the door on super yeah. or at least having access to that um, situation where you can split or optimise that contract inside and outside. Yeah. Because I think, my personal opinion, it's probably a bit of a disservice to have that inside superannuation because getting access becomes very, very difficult. And this is the, and it's for another episode, but this then opens the door to affordability, uh, cash flow. Do we just have, hey, let's just do a step cover, you know, outside super for the non-working spouse. Hey, it's better than nothing. (laughs) Like, And I think people also have to be aware that even if you've got these super splitting arrangements, we have to assess the any occupation definition first, which is, takes a lot more time. So even though you might have the premier definition in an own occupation, you've got to go through that that 
basic process first and and a lot of people don't understand that they've actually got to make a decision a yes no decision on that any occupation definition first before they can even start to look at that that better definition i think that's an important thing because that often comes up at claim stage i think you've touched on a real sleeper there danny um it's something that's not very well known in the industry is time and if you i think if any advisors are listening one of the key things to take out about the word super is time so whenever you're looking at any type of contract inside super there's going to be an element of extended time to get the claim assessed and for some group arrangements it can be months because often these trustees don't meet on a regular basis yeah they might meet monthly or every six weeks Mm. income protection my two cents adam and yep. you can correct me from a PDS point of view. Every time I recommended income protection, I would circle, put a flare, flag, you know, print out as a poster the definition of disability and the tiering because a lot of our clients think disabled and what the consumers in general think of disabled they probably picture somebody in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. They probably think of somebody who is paralyzed or can't work so i think it's important to and this is certainly what i did mm. disabled if you can't do one important duty if or if you can do that but you can't work time or uh money so that's my view of ip and showing clients what's actually bloody important in a pds yeah what's your advice to people it when recommending is, IP. Yeah, it still is very important, the definition of disability. I think one of the issues as an industry and, and part of the reason why we've sort of landed where we are at the moment is the generosity of contracts. So I think, you know, for those of your clients, Glenn, that maybe you were engaging with uh, and as an advisor, if you're listing those that you come across that will shortly have those older contracts, you may need to be hanging on to those with both hands. Like don't necessarily think you need to jump ship into something that's new and shiny. It was like the old uh, AMP lifetime, lifetime de- benefit period for oh, accident. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yeah. There's still a few of them around. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, but so I think the definition of disability is certainly one that is going to have increased importance moving forward because the the sort of three tier definition you referred to, you know, that sort of income, the hours, the duties, you know, that's likely to be reshaped moving forward. But a lot of the new players into the market. Um, basically drop the three tier after that two years on claim anyway. Mm. So it was starting to change. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. I know certainly with on the Zurich side, there's a, the product that has that sort of built in has done for the last few years. And I think these really do try and address that broader issue, which is now becoming more prevalent, which is mm. affordability. And I think that there was something interesting that uh, that I picked up on the other day that that's a little devil that a lot of people don't know about that probably should... Given Australia has ranked as one of the top countries for cosmetic procedures and nips and tucks and we outdo the US, is that that, that comes under elective surgery. Yeah. So if I'm nominating, if I'm, you know, if I'm an Eastern Beaches Sydney, <laughs> Sydney cider and I can say that because I am, and I've opted to have a nip and tuck and it goes wrong, they're actually, you may be... Um, ineligible to receive an income protection benefit. Yeah, there's definitely question marks, I think. And that's it sort of touches on one of the, I think, the core considerations for advisors to think about when they're looking at, through that PDS for that particular client on, on income protection is what is that inherent uh, makeup of that individual? Are they the eastern suburbs 
um, lifestyle, Danny? Um, or are they? <laughs> Let's not put me in this, but no. <laughs> I, I just have a friend of a friend of mine. Yes, asking on behalf of someone else. Um, or are they a you know suburban, you know father of four um, that um, does other things as part of their sort of um, risk or, or leisure pursuits? I mean, it it does come down, I think, to what is inherently unique about the individual. Um, you know, if you're dealing, you know, if you're an advisor dealing with perhaps someone in their, a female late 30s, uh, you know, initial thought might be to, well, what's sort of the breast cancer risk? Um, is a trauma advancement type option mm. um, likely to be top of mind um, versus, uh, uh, you know, a the, male? The whole specified injury benefit, mm. uh, and for those junior advisors who might be new to risk, can you explain what these benefits are? And I've had great success with them with clients. Is that something we need to highlight to people uh, if it's built in on the IP contract? For someone like me, Glenn, it is probably the most important element of an IP contract. Um, my leisure pursuits fairly high risk, so high risk of you know fractures. So a specified injury benefit. Are you a chess player? Uh, <laughs> a very aggressive chess yeah. player. Um, I. Enjoy riding a motorcycle um, and uh, within that, obviously, the, the high level of risk. But for those of you that don't know a specified injury benefit, it's all about paying a multiple of that income protection benefit in advance based on a specific condition that someone's incurred. So if you've you know, fractured a leg bone, you might just get an automatic two or three months benefit paid because it's highly likely that you're going to be off for that particular period anyway. Yeah. I'm going to ask, I'm just going to go a little bit off piece and because uh, I think it's important. Like you have had many, many years looking at various contracts across the market. Yes. And I want to know, Adam, like what did you decide to go with with your income protection benefit? Like did you go the bells and whistles or did you pair it? Like what was your, you know, knowing everything and knowing all the details, what did you actually elect to do when you built your own income protection package and, and why? Yeah, it's a good question. I, we can all answer it. <laughs> yes, we, can. we actually could because it's going Let's to show that it. mentality on the persona of a client and, and why. Like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I took an interesting route. So for me, it was trying to mix what was important with affordability. So I actually paired back on the quality of the contract. So still outside super, um, but I wanted to secure a level premium, one that I didn't think was going to be as impacted by cost as one that was maybe fully featured, all the bells and whistles. So one that sort of spoke more to the core traditional type approach of IP policies. Uh, and it's actually served me well. Because mm. um, you'd, you'd know, and for those, um, and I hope I, you can cut this out if it's not able to, <laughs> to go to air, but you actually did have a, a claim recently, Adam, which is not a, a funny um event but you did actually go through a an accident and, and make an IP claim and so did your approach actually match up to what your expectation was like what you got at the end of the day did that product deliver to it the product absolutely delivered uh, and for me that was welcome uh, I think one of the surprises though Danny was not so much in the insurance product the money being paid it was actually after the event it was just trying to understand that for me there was something missing not from the product, not from the money that was paid. But for me, I think there was an absence from um, almost like contact from uh, advisors, from sort of that financial element where, you know, the insurers had done their job, the money was paid. I felt I would love to have had a better engagement 
from your advisor. Um, from the advisor, yeah. Just to try and work through. Did the advisor do your claim for you? No. You did um, it yourself, direct yeah. through the insurer? I did, yeah. Um, but I think just having that. And often, I, I think when I think back in retrospect, um, and maybe it was even a fault of my own in terms of what expectation it was from an advice insurance type relationship. But I wonder if many advisors think that journey is a bit like climbing a mountain where you're trying to pre-plan for something to happen. And, you know, at the top of that mountain, if something does happen, the claim is paid. So an advisor can say, beauty, job done, fantastic. But there's so much more to it. Once that claim occurs, it really does, for me, become that that uh, base of the mountain, really. That's mm. the start. It's Yeah, a couple of things you said there, and I know we're going a bit deeper into this IP thing. The ratings war, among other things, mm. has screwed the industry in terms of the product features. Because when we step back, it's like we want income protection. If we can't work, it replaces our income. That's what we want. Yep. Yeah, it's cute that we've got the nanny benefit and the accommodation. Yeah. Awesome. If your regional client might be a benefit, but if we go back, I can't work, I get money in the door. And believe it or not, when I'm better, the money stops. So, (laughs) but to the claim point, there's so many advisors who don't double down on the client experience with the claim. I've been at Gosford Hospital on a Saturday afternoon with a claim kit just to give the client comfort that I'm there for you. Yeah. And it just cements that relationship. And it does actually more than cement the relationship. Like we did some benchmarking research and one of the most um, powerful referrals and the highest number of referrals comes from claimants who've had that good experience. So on average, they were referring seven of their friends and families to that advisor. So, you know, it is it is probably the admirable thing to do to be at, be at the hospital, but it's also a really good business decision to actually think through the claims process and think about how you are delivering and building that experience. I so agree with that. In fact, if you were to ask me now, Adam, what is the most important thing or what's the first thing that I would ask an advisor if I was looking for an advisor? It would be show me your claim service that happens after a claim is paid. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. So on income protection, the things that I've picked up that you really want to show your clients in the PDS the definition of disability. Yep. I think the specified injury benefit is important and can play to your clients and can play to your clients, maybe hobbies or interests. And it's just that soft thing. Hey, yeah, if you break your leg, yeah, you get three months or whatever. Correct. Like it's, it's a no brainer. And then thirdly, and I didn't uh, even think of this, Danny, was the elective surgery stuff. And I'm going to throw in another one. I know we were looking for... Well, elective cosmetic yeah. surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw in another one like because I think it's important. I think it's timely. Like a lot of people don't just have one job at the moment. Like you might have, um, and we're going to dive into this when we look at claims later on a bit deeper with the, with the head of claims. But I think it's really important to understand, and Adam, I'd love your commentary on it. Like let's say I'm an accountant and I took out an income protection policy when I was an accountant, but my hours have been cut back and now I'm an Uber driver and I'm, I'm working sort of 10, 11 hours, 12 hours as an Uber driver. What impact does that actually have multiple jobs and multiple income streams on my income protection policy from a contract perspective? 
Like what 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 should we be flagging or thinking through? Like you yeah. don't have to have the scientific claim end answer, but what's your opinion on? Look, if you'd asked that question, you know, a year or two ago, um, it probably wouldn't matter a great deal, uh, particularly in an outside of super retail type contract. But moving forward, my goodness, it's going to make a massive difference mm. because clients will need to be re uh, underwritten from an occupation perspective every five years. So this is something which is likely to come to fruition as part of this sort of APRA type arrangement. Any existing policies that you've got uh, will remain unaffected. Uh, but if you decided to, you know, maybe you wanted to increase, you know, as an Uber driver, you're earning megabucks and you wanted to just do a top up, then yes, that sort of occupation at the time would be used just for the increase. Uh, but what's held in place remains in place. But that's certainly going to shift mm. uh, in a post-APRA environment. Trauma. If there's two things in the trauma section of a PDS or critical illness or whatever mm. you, want, you want to call it out there, uh, what are you highlighting to a, a new risk trauma policyholder? Look, for trauma, for me, it would be, and this becomes almost a bit more black and white, around some of those more core definitions, your cancers, your heart attacks, those common events that are likely to happen to someone who is in their mid-30s or mid-40s. So, you know, if it's a, a male sort of in that, you know, those 40s, it's starting to look at what's the prostate cancer definition look like, the bowel cancer. Uh, for women, of course, it's the breast cancer type approach. So it would be those definitions which are uh, more appropriate for that individual. Uh, you know, if you look at some of the more broader, uh, rarer type events, look, they may play a part, but potentially if there is a... With trauma, I mean, the products are so similar now in the market, but... Are there any big differences that still exist through definition? I think in a trauma sense, if you were to look across the gamut of definitions, there is a level of consistency. But I would say where there are still variations is in what happens at an early stage. So if a cancer is diagnosed, but it's not quite severe, you may not get a full benefit, but mm. potentially a partial benefit. And I think as people are becoming more self-aware about things happening to them, it's those partial definitions of disability which are becoming increasingly important. Uh, some providers will offer at least some form of benefit. Others will actually close the door and not allow access until that condition gets worse, even in the retail space. So I think looking at the treatment across partial beneficiaries, it could be things like melanoma, early stage melanoma, early stage prostate cancer. I had cancer. one of those claims earlier in the year. For yourself? Melanoma, yeah. Wow. Had the bloody money in my account before the stitches were out. Thank you. Wow. Touch wood, hopefully not too. The doctor sedic. said, you've got my alarm. I'm like, shut up. I'm on the phone to the claims team. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I'm glad the money was paid. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Because sometimes melanoma, let me tell you from experience. Oh, you'll um, wake up dead. It can be, yeah, or not wake up at yeah. all. Like dreadful. <laughs> um, just. Yeah. So we're just having lighthearted conversations. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, about I guess. Um, <laughs> Stay tuned. But I guess as all the, as all the type of covers that an advisor might recommend. Yep. I used to tell my clients at the end of the day, that trauma policy, 95% of claims are cancer, heart attack and stroke. You're buying the policy for that. Anything else is a bonus, darling. Is That's that what's, yeah, what's your perspective on you know that, Adam? I think it's a great question to ask uh, the head of claims if you've got them coming mm, up. Yeah. But <laughs> I think there's certainly something still to be said, though, for the validity of that, Glenn. I think those sort of cancer... Um, events, heart attack type events are very, very common. Um, but as I said earlier, I think it's just getting some insight into how those early stage events are treated. Mm. Um, you know, paying 
hundreds of thousands of dollars for something which is seen as mild and moderate. Because there's another side of that equation is mm. the affordability. Like it's Absolutely. all, I mean, to, to you know, if you're going to have all a lot of partials paid, that's might be what that particular client wants. Yep. Um, but if you are just trying to cover the major stuff at certain levels and you want that contract to be affordable in 10 years' time, there's a whole other conversation, isn't it? Because, you know, can you maintain the contract because the premiums keep going up every year? So there's that, you know, how would, you know, with your clients, Glenn, as when you were an advisor, how would you manage that? Well, I, I think it's just that setting realistic expectations. When we're recommending the trauma policy, open, like I used to open the heart attack definition and say, as an example, you know, this product has been made and it can't cover unlimited things yeah. or it would be infinite to pay for. So, there, there's got to be a gate around a condition. And if you have a heart attack and a claim's paid, it was bloody serious. <laughs> if you go to hospital, I've had a minor heart attack and I'm back out the same day and I've had cl- that happen to clients... Yes, you've had a heart attack, but don't bitch and moan that you didn't get paid because thankfully it wasn't that serious. So I think it's that, and you can tell I'm not accountable to anyone anymore. Um, you can actually rearranging your opinions yeah, just but, like that. Well, but it's just that it's that expectations. It is. This policy can't cover heaven and earth, but we just need to be aware that if you have a medical event that is serious enough, mm. you will be looked after with yep. confidence. Yep. And I think advisors are likely to find a lot more work mm. around trauma insurance, particularly, Danny, to your point, around clients who are getting a little bit older. Uh, they're probably approaching that almost peak claim period, but it's getting expensive. Mm. So, you know, if their debts are starting to decrease, can an advisor maybe just decrease that sum insured, making it a bit more palatable from a cost perspective? Yeah. We're going to wrap this episode up now. Uh, and I just want to encourage you that, you know, what is one or two things that you can take out of this conversation? You might have thought of with an existing client that you've had that, oh, I should have said that or I should have shown them that in the PDS. What can you do now when you sit down in front of your next client to actually just educate them about the product and why it's written out? Do you have any final comments, Damon? Yeah, I do, Glenn. It was interesting. Last year, I spent some time um, doing some sort of customer experience type work with Zurich. And as part of that project, I jumped on the phone and spoke to many of the Zurich customers around their insurance. And these were people that had dealt with our call centres within the sort of past six to 12 months. Were they claimants? No, they were just okay, they were cust- policy holders. And I had this belief that they'd kind of just taken this contract as like, I get sick, I get paid. And I was gobsmacked around the level of education that they wanted. And so it was a real shift in perspective for me that I thought, oh, yep, yeah, you know, they just, they don't want to know a huge amount of detail. They want to know that they get sick and they get paid. But in fact, I had a number of these clients say to me, oh, yeah, I researched and I Googled online stepped versus level and they really wanted to actually know the information. And so I would just encourage everyone to think about what's your program or what's your strategy for over time increasing their knowledge around the contracts. And I've come across in my work with different advice officers some really clever strategies around that. You know, some people drip it through their socials so some really impactful kind of statements that shock and kind of 
get people thinking and understanding perhaps the value of what they've bought if they have bought one of those premier contracts why and I know just from another study that we did with um, you know Oxford actually at a global level was that Australia's literacy is incredibly poor particularly in insurance so um, people want to know the information and I guess it's about figuring out how you can deliver that information and that education, not in a scare campaign type way, but just in a in a in a drip feed and education sort of literacy building manner. Love it. There you go. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks, Thanks Danny. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is. Who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation.